Thank you for tuning in to the Change Your Filter podcast. I am your host. You know that. As always, Tall Paul Redmond. One day I might drop the Tall Paul and just go by Paul, but we'll see how it goes. Anyhow, I am fresh off of a relaxing weekend down in Jamaica with a bunch of customers and just as importantly, listeners. Thank you to everyone who shared your feedback about the Change Your Filter podcast, especially because you did so in front of my wife, validating the time I spend making everyone else be quiet around the house. But without further ado, let's introduce you to our guest. Our guest today is Kip Morris. Kip is the chief executive officer at Five Star Group and co-founder of Emerge Recovery and Trade Initiative, which we'll talk quite a bit about in this episode. Kip is either a board member or a past board member of several nonprofits and faith-based organizations and ministries serving in and around Ohio, where I am from. In this episode, Kip talks about how he bought a 250,000 square foot property or something like that to transform the lives of others while also preparing people for real life work in the trades. Kip shares his story of addiction, tragedy, recovery, and finally hope. And I encourage you to reach out to Kip if you or someone you know is struggling with alcohol or drugs or just need some encouragement. He shares his contact information at the end of this podcast and considers it a true privilege to help other people. Please enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Kip Morris. Hey, this is Kip Morris. You're listening to the Change Your Filter podcast with Tall Paul. Thank you for joining the Change Your Filter podcast. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I knew when we first met, I knew that you had a story that one, personally and selfishly, I wanted to hear more. And then secondarily, I I wanted our listeners and audience to hear. But first, thank you for being a listener and not just a listener, but also a customer of ours here at Contractor Commerce. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. And um, we're a big fan of yours. And we're excited about working with you and excited to see where you continue to take the five-star group. But before we get into that, it would seem to me that as it, at least from the outside, that you're relatively private or, you know, maybe don't spend a lot of time, you know, bouncing all over the country, telling people your story. Like seems like you're a pretty hyper-local guy, which we'll get into. But explain to me, who is Kit Morris for our audience who's who's tuning in today and maybe have not heard your name before? Okay. So uh, I'm the CEO of a company called the Five Star Group, and we, uh, we do um, five-star home services. We're in uh, plumbing, electrical, heating, and cooling in the Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton market. So, um, you know, the, uh, probably the, if I had to describe myself in a, in, in a few amount of words, I would, uh, I would describe myself as a disciple of Christ who's in the home services business. So, um, and really utilizing and leveraging everything with home services to really uh, kind of uh, walk out my faith. Tell me more about that. Is that a, a way you have you would have described yourself through your entire career or what kind of, you know, shaped that identity today? Yeah, so um no, I would I definitely would not have described myself my entire career. So for me, I'm currently fifty six at the age of thirty five is kind of when I had my spiritual awakening. That's when I uh, you know, decided to become a follower of, of Jesus Christ and um and then slowly, um, it was a, you know, I'm a work in progress as we speak, um, but it's, it's a process, uh, you know, process of, you know, sanctification, just trying to be a little bit more like Jesus every day, you know, and I went from being somebody who was uh, 
not interested in any spiritual principles and uh, to somebody who um, really had to take a look at who he was, how he was doing business and how that lined up with his new spiritual paradigm. So it's been a progressive walk and I'm 21 years into it and uh, I learned something every day. What was the moments or moments that led to more of an interest in spirituality? Was it a occurrence or describe that period of time around 35 years old? Well, it would probably, I'd I'd probably have to take it back till to when I was 16 years old. And that was kind of a, and there was an event happened when I was 16 that kind of put me on a course that led me to um, the spiritual awakening at 35. And um, at 16, myself and my family had gotten home from a soccer game, my soccer game, my high school soccer game. And I had an older brother who did not go to the game because he was actually packing up for college um, the next day. He was starting college the next day. So normally he would have been at the game, but he was packing up for college. And uh, uh, I was I actually got home a little bit before my family and actually found my brother dead from an overdose, a drug overdose. Mm. So that event, uh, at the time that that event occurred, we were Catholic and I didn't find a lot of relief or answers to that faith. So I just kind of went on a, you know, kind of number one, adopted a live for today attitude. And then then number two, really started studying the different spiritual philosophies of the world, just trying to figure out what had happened to my brother, which uh, in turn led me to Christ at age 35. And at 35, I had become very, uh, become a, a major player in the residential water treatment market in Florida. I'd gained a lot of success. So I always made a lot of money and I always, uh, you know, was really quick to um, please my flesh with the money that I made. So, you know, I, I was I was in full blown addiction for 20 years, uh, alcohol, drugs, you name it. So at 35, um, at the time when I accepted Christ, I had to kind of take a look at all that. And then immediately upon, uh, you know, becoming a Christian, realized that my calling was to help other men who are potentially or perhaps were struggling with addiction. Did you recognize it? And obviously 20 years, those are, those are a very formative set of years, you know, 16 to 35 from, you know, young teen to adult. Did you recognize it as addiction at the time or what did it look like when you were in it? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, um, anytime the opportunity to use drugs or drink alcohol or whatever the addiction was at the time. There's many different types of addictions. Anytime the opportunity to do that presented itself, I took, I always took advantage of it. I wasn't able, I was a kind of a slave to it, if that makes any sense. So I, I knew there was a problem, but I was also functional. So, you know, I, I could live in it and still be successful. Yeah. And, 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 and basically what it boils down to is there was just something, there was a hole in my heart that I was trying to fill through these different carnal experiences is what it boils down to. And I could never fill them. Talk to me about being high functional and um, in high performance. So you had had some real success in the home service world. You were known as being a really good salesperson. Talk to me about just your, your work during that period of time, what was going on, what you were doing in the industry, and then what, if anything, changed at mid-30s? Yeah, so my career path up until 
up until really until age 45 was in home improvement and home improvement sales. I worked for other companies and by the time I was 25, I was an in-home master closer. I closed at over 50% on whatever type of home improvement lead I was running. Got into management between, you know, 25 and 35. You know, basically, um, when I worked for a company, I usually would travel for them, either go to a market and fix a market or start a market or go into a market and just fire everybody and then rehire a new staff. So, you know, sales and marketing was always something I was gifted towards, you know, and then um, it was it was that experience that I I had in the home improvement business that really has led to the way we do home services now, initially heating and cooling, but now home services, you know, taking a lot of the um, outside the box thinking that you need to do in a really highly competitive industry of home improvement and applying those same principles to home services and heating and cooling. Got it. Now describe to me, because I've read you talked about, you know, people experiencing rock bottom. Did you have rock bottom moments in that period of time prior to you becoming a Christian and, and turning your life around? I would say the, the, the rock bottom moment for me was just um, being in a point in life where I had everything that the world would have to offer in regards to money, cars, homes, women, and still just not feeling, you know, not feeling fulfilled. Um, yeah. Like there was a hole in my heart and no matter what I did, I couldn't fill it. So for everybody who's struggled with addiction, um, their, their bottoming out moments is, is going to look different. It looks different, you know, based on the individual, just the circumstances of their life. But for me, it was just not being able to fill that, that void in myself through physical pleasures. And the process of filling that void, did that come overnight? Did it come through an instance? Did it come through the abstinence of things? Like what eventually filled that? And I know we that opens up a whole nother category of conversation, right. but right. what was that experience like? So what it was, here's kind of, the, I'll give you the nickel version. So there was a guy, I, I, I was kind of climbing the chain of, in, in Orlando, Florida, I was continuing to be recruited by larger companies in residential water treatment industry. And when I would go to a new company, the first thing that I would do is interview the salespeople because I had a staff that kind of followed me around. So I usually would fire most of the salespeople, but I would give them 15 minutes for them to convince me that they were worthy of working for such an incredible individual as myself. Uh, I'm not kidding you. I was, I was a little self-focused. So it was in, in the course of going from one company to another that uh, there are three guys waiting outside my new office to, to plead their case. And there was one guy, who the moment I saw him, I could tell he was a little bit different. Couldn't put my finger on it, but I could just tell there was something different about him. And he was a 60-year-old Jamaican man. So I interviewed the first guy. I don't remember what happened there. But when he came in, and keep in mind, like, I can control a conversation. I'm a, I'm a, I was a master closer. So I, as far as controlling conversations, I was, I was pretty good at it. But it didn't take long for for it to get to the point to where he was actually interviewing me and it was kind of unsettling. It kind of shook me a little bit. And uh, because that experience intrigued me, I decided to keep him. And he was eventually the one who kind of, you know, led me to Christ just by asking me a lot of questions and answering some questions uh, in a way that I could uh, consider, you know, following the Christian God. Got it. And from that point forward, what, what changed? Well, what it was, the experience happened. It was, it was a, it was a supernatural experience 
that happened in a moment. And it was basically, he had been, you know, we've been had, we had a lot of spiritual talks and I was at that point, I was very eclectic as far as my spiritual beliefs. You know, I had a little, a lot of Eastern philosophy, lost a lot of postmodernism. I was into actually a lot of witchcraft, uh, shamanism, that type of thing. So we had a lot of conversations about that. And he had uh, got me going, he had a little house church and he got me going to that house church. And it was during the kind of before the service when they do the praise and worship that God kind of touched my heart and let me experience him in a way that I'd never experienced, just experienced his love and uh, actually kind of filled that hole that I'd never felt had ever been filled before. And, um, you know, just uh, when the experience completed, I felt squeaky clean is the best way I could describe it. Kind of like after you go swimming in a pool, <laughs> um, just I felt clean and I never felt, I'd always, I've never felt that way before. At that point, was addiction in the rear view mirror or was it something you would continue to wrestle? So at that point, addiction became an option. It wasn't something that I uh, was my default mode. Mm -hmm. In other words, prior to that experience, I was a slave to it. After that experience, I had the ability to say no if I chose to. So I still had the ability to choose to make a poor decision, which I did several times post experience, but it was optional at that point. Did it become easier to make the right choice over time or what was your relationship with moving away from it? And I say that to say, I know you, you had, I believe in our first conversation had mentioned being in recovery and I want to understand what recovery is and over time duration behaviors and, and all of that. Okay. So when it, when it comes to addiction and when it comes to, you know, being in the process of recovery, there's really kind of two ways you can look at it. Um, one way is from the Christian paradigm. If you really understand, you know, um, the Bible and, and as you, as you continue to walk out your salvation, you realize that you're not recovering, you're recovered. And there's a difference. Whereas with, you know, so the Christian paradigm of recovery looks a little bit different than the 12 step paradigm in recovery because the 12 step will tell you that he's always an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Christian will tell you that's what he was. Both of these paradigms do keep people sober. Uh, the path I chose to go down was the Christian paradigm. And this kind of leads into, you know, you know, there was a period of time where I did not embrace the 12 steps at all. Mm -hmm. I was actually opposed to them. And uh, that was that was probably one of the biggest learning experiences that I had in the recovery ministry is that um, not everybody's going to choose to take the Christian path. So for someone who doesn't, in, in my opinion, for someone who doesn't choose the Christian path, then the, the, the next best thing would be the 12 steps because you've got a lot. The, the 12 steps was breathed from the Bible. And uh, there was a time when actually Jesus was in the 12 steps. But it is a way that you can manage your addiction and stay sober for the rest of your life. So you had a second chance in life. And now you extend that second chance to your team members at Five Star as a second chance employer. What does it mean to be a second chance employer and, you know, what risks does that have? What challenges does that have? Yeah. So this is something that kind of evolved within our company organically uh, because so my partner's my brother. He's also recovered. He's in recovery mm -hmm. as well. Long term recovery. So um, he actually hired our first second chance employee. Now, a second chance employee would typically be somebody who would have a hard time getting employed based on his record. Mm -hmm which kind of spurns off of, uh, you know, making some poor decisions 
in the past where there were some pretty serious consequences. So um, we will, you know, we when we interview somebody or when we engage somebody who's in the process of recovery, we'll talk to them. And if we feel like they're at a point in their life where they're ready to make a change, we'll, we will give them an opportunity to come and work for our company. And, and what we're basically doing is we point towards a door and if they choose to walk through that door, they can literally change the course of their life and regain everything that was lost during the course of their um, addiction. As a big company and getting bigger by the day, is it difficult to maintain that, for lack of a better word, level of intimacy with your employees to understand kind of where they are and what's going on and what kind of you know, improvement or setbacks are they experiencing? I mean, I, I feel like that would get hard at scale. Like it would be easy in a team of 10. Yeah. So there's definitely challenges that come with the growth of the company, but because, you know, we have over 250 employees and over a hundred of those employees are second chance employees. So there's a lot of accountability within the company and the way we've kind of built it is to where within the company, there are support structures and things that we do within the company to where if somebody is struggling, they have resources available to them that can help them. And then there's also accountability um, as well. And then you've got, you, you're, you've got a company full of people that are quick to see red flags too. Got it. Now, 250 employees, a hundred of which are second chance employees. Is that just a coincidence? Is that part of the methodology for recruiting or have you become known to people who are having a difficult time getting a job elsewhere? Is it, is it involved in recruiting or is that just the way the industry is broken out and because you've got an open door, that's the way it works? I think so. Again, this all kind of happened within our company organically. So it wasn't like we, it just kind of happened. <laughs> and, and what, what began happening was like the, the first second chance employee that we had came out of a, a, a minute, a recovery ministry. So when they're in the later phases of that ministry, they started as an intern with us and then eventually became a full time employee. So we began to engage more and more organizations that were transitional recovery organizations and ministries. And basically, if there was somebody who came into that uh, organization that had a background in the trades or was mechanically inclined, and again, seemed like they were ready to change the course of their life, those names would be passed on to us. And then we would go through a process where we interview them, ask them some questions. And if we felt like uh, there was a good chance that this individual, you know, could indeed, you know, benefit from what we have to offer, um, then we would give them a chance. And that's, it just kind of happened naturally, organically, and, uh, and, you know, gotten to that point. And then as we grew, we began putting things in place to um, give them the accountability that they need. And then we did some things within the company as well, as far as actually purchasing houses and letting, you know, employees who, you know, wanted to, you know, give them a place to live, you know, recovery, you know, transitional recovery houses where, you know, they have a place to live as they work for the company until they transition on their own. You've mentioned the word transitional several times in different contexts. Talk to me about what you mean when a person is in transition. And then I guess that ties into probably the four-legged stool conversation we'll have. But let's talk about what you mean by a person transitioning. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, transitional recovery, what that means is that they've already, this is somebody who had a recent bout with addiction. Uh, and they went, they engaged a recovery program. This is a program you go to to come off the drugs. And it's usually it could be as little as, you know, 60 to 90 days, all the way up to 18 months. But upon completing whatever program they're in, they then kind of transition instead of, you know, you don't 
a lot of times you can't get a job, you can't get a house. If you don't have a, a job, you can't get a job if you don't have a place to live. So first of all, like the big gap in our system right now in, in, in recovery is once you complete the program, now what? There's not just, there's not a lot out there. And the reason why there's not a lot out there is because there's not a lot of money available for transitional recovery type organizations. All the money from Medicaid and from insurance companies are geared towards the program. And the, the people that are making the money off the program aren't interested in necessarily in helping people transition into the world because if that client relapses, they can bill all over again for them. So it's kind of like a, a system where there's a gap. And what, what transitional recovery does, it kind of bridges that gap from the time that they leave the program to help transition them to where they can be a productive member of society. So when you hear the term transitional, it's kind of that they just completed the program and now they're trying to transition back into the world. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It, explain to me what it takes. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm seeing the gap, that transitional period, but what does it take to become a functioning member of society or a productive member of society? Cause it's much easier. It's not just get a job or quit using. Yeah, it's different for every individual. So there's, you know, every individual who struggles with addiction has a story. You know, some of the stories, there's a lot more trauma experience than others. So, you know, some people need everything. They, they've been in addiction all their life. Their parents were in addiction. They don't even know how to do laundry. So, you know, for an individual like that, you've got to, number one, give them an opportunity to where they can make a good living. But number two, you got to teach them all the life skills. How do you balance a checkbook? How do you do laundry? How do you cook? And, you know, typically when you're in addiction too, you don't um, mentally mature at all. So I know a lot of 30-year-olds that are, you know, have a maturity level in a lot of ways of a 14, 15 year old. So, you know, just teaching them the life skills. Second thing is, you know, a lot of the guys that we deal with, you know, because of the broken families, because of just the toll that addiction has played as far as just, you know, killing people. They didn't have like a father figure. So, you know, putting them either being that role for them being a mentor or giving them access to where they can have a mentor or somebody who can be kind of like a father figure and kind of teach them what it is to be a man. And then, then you've got the whole, you know, they never really held down a job. So, you know, trying to match them up with a, a job that kind of matches their giftings and skill sets. So it's, uh, it's, it's based on, uh, like I said, every individual is different. It's based on their life circumstances. Then you got the guy who, you know, had a, you know, completely sheltered life and just got into addiction when he's 25. And basically what he needs to do is just needs to learn, uh, you know, strategic techniques on how not to use. There's a, there's a number of different, um, scenarios and things that need to be dealt with, but it's all based on the, the, um, the individual and their life experience. I want to know more about the culture at Five Star, but I'll ask it this way. If I were coming in off the streets and maybe I was a technician or I worked somewhere else and I was just curious about working at your company and you hired me, what would be different about working within your organization as a second chance employer or whatever than I may have experienced working somewhere else in the trades? I think one of the things that kind of sets sets us apart, I know we're going to talk about a merge later on, but um, you know, being able to work for a company and be a part of something that's bigger than just whatever that company does. Mm-hmm. So in our case, um, because we're so enmeshed in the recovery community, um, we also have a paradigm whenever, you know, we try to help people that are in need as much as possible. So, you know, you, people buy into that. And um, when you do it at the level that we're going to be, that, that we are currently are doing it and will do it in the future, you know, it doesn't take long for you to work for the company to understand that, you know, we, we probably go above and beyond as far 
far as how we care in regards to our employees, whether it be somebody who uh, is in addiction. You know, another example would be like we had a we had a guy who was our you know our VP of operation. He had a son who had had cancer, and so for you know half the year he had to you know help help his son get through that. You know, you know our policy there was you know we're going to allow him to be with his son and take care of his family, and we're going to and that's going to be paid time. You know, so. That's kind of the, the mindset that we have. It's kind of our the ethos of the company where we, we, we care about our employees. So as far as the effect that it has on the culture, it just, uh, I mean, you can't even describe it in words. It's just that, you know, the, the employees that work for us, we had a, a party a couple of years ago, a company party, and we had four organizations that we uh, um, that we supported, some of them solely supported. And we had people come in, from those or that had been affected from those organizations. And, um, you know, it helps people get out of the bed in the morning when they know that when they come in and go to work, that the money that's generated, the profit that's generated from, uh, you know, the work that they do is going to go to help people. And what we call that at five stars profit on purpose. This might be a short sighted or shallow question, but when I hear of like a culture that is generous and intentional with helping employees, that has to come at one, a cost, and two, the opportunity to be taken advantage of or to be incredibly distracted with non-productive work things. It feels messy, right? The work you do feels really, really messy and hard. So just talk to me about that. So are you talking about the work we do with our employees or just with customers? or With employees, yeah. It depends on, you know, for most people, it probably would feel that way. Very short-sighted question, shallow, if you will. I'm just kidding, Paul. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no. But I mean, so the paradigm that we have, and when I say we, myself and my brother as owners of the company, is that this business, you know, is not even our business. It's God's mm-hmm. business. So he just lets us steward that business. And, you know, when you're in business, you can shoot for, you know, two types of treasures. You can shoot for earthly treasures. We all know what those are. The cars, the boats, the million dollar parties in Vegas, whatever, you know, people in our space like to do with the money that's generated. What we choose to do, how we choose to steward that money is um, we choose to use it to help people out, love people, and to make our little part of the world a better place. And by doing so, you accumulate, you know, in our mind, we accumulate what you call heavenly treasure. So, you know, there's a quote that I love. Let's see if I can remember it. It's like, aim, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was C.S. Lewis who said that, but, and that's kind of our mindset. So although there are times, you know, we had a a couple weeks ago, we had one of those weeks where it got a little bit messy and we had to deal with things that probably typically companies, you know, wouldn't have to deal with, you know, it's worth it. It's part of who we are. You know, it's in the midst of that muck that we feel like we're in our purpose. Do your competitors use it as a strategic advantage for them to say like, oh, you shouldn't work with these guys because they hire only convicts or ex-convicts or whatever. So, you know, there are companies that do that. Uh, they'll use it, you know, if they're, they know a, a customer's considering doing business with us and there's, you know, there's all kinds of ways they go with that. And we're not shy about stating the fact that we're a second chance company. So the business that we lose uh, from that is, uh, you know, uh, it's far outweighed by the business that we get because of it. Because so many, most everybody we know these days has been affected by um, addiction, whether it was their son or their father or 
cousin or their wife or husband. So most people, the person that is going to shy away from us because of that is probably the customer I don't want to have anyway. We're kind of a disruptor in the markets that we're in. And we are probably, I mean, I mean, had a meeting today, you know, where, you know, one of our distributors is just telling us how hated we are from our competitors because we are successful and uh, we are, you know, kind of a market disruptor. So, yeah, so it's kind of goes along with what we do. But uh, like I said, I think that we we probably are benefited more than we are hurt from it. We're going to come back to the market disruptor element. I mean, I am like, I want to go down that path now, but there's a few things I want to talk about. I believe you alluded to or described the elements of the four-legged stool, but maybe not directly called it out that. Could you go through your philosophy on where other recovery programs fall short or where your mind is around the the four-legged stool? Yeah. So yeah, recovery, we, we look, kind of look at recovery as a four-legged stool. Uh, the first leg of the stool would be just your relationship with yourself. And basically what that boils down to is, you know, why do we do what we do? What is it about our past that has caused us to, you know, to have struggle with self-control in regards to substances? So the first leg of the stool would be relationship with self. Uh, The second leg of the stool would be relationship with others. So we want to be in relationships where we can be held accountable. We want to have people that mentor us. And eventually, we want to have people that we mentor. And that's the second leg of the stool. The third leg of the stool would be relationship with God, understanding that there is a creator God and that he can, uh, if you surrender to him, he can can help you in regards to give you self-control. And he can change the course of your life. So you have to have a relationship with God. And then the fourth leg of the stool would be having a a viable career path or job to where you can make the kind of money that you need to put food on the table, support your family and thrive without having to go back to do the thing, doing the things that maybe you had to do prior, you know, to your recovery to put food on the table. So, you know, we've seen people that, you know, you you can sit on a one-legged stool, you balance really well. Um, But the people that utilize all four legs on the stool in their recovery are the ones that are really walking out long-term. And, you know, anything less than that, your chances of not being able to walk that out increase. Yeah, I was really, it, it, it was, it made me pause for a moment and think about how hard it must be for someone that's leaving destructive patterns in their past to go through recovery and, you know, turn a new leaf when their ways of making money, their relationships and all those things are still on the other side of the bridge they just left. And you can't really burn that bridge unless you have resources that are greater than what you had, whether it was theft or borrowing or the people you hang out with the relationships. And it seems like you help people burn that bridge for lack of a better word. Yeah, if you go back to the old familiar people, places and things, you're going to probably repeat the behavior. So you've got to kind of, you know, reevaluate, you know, where you spend your time and, you know, bad company corrupts good morals, right? Yeah. So you had mentioned that um, you provide a, a different level of support within your business for these employees. And talk to me about what the support looks like for employees in the company. So a lot of that's going to depend on where they're at in their recovery. How, in other words, how long they've been in recovery. So, mm-hmm. when somebody who just completed the program is in transitional housing, and maybe one of the houses that we provide, 
you know, their accountability is going to look a little different than the guy who's been with us for five years and is sober and has, you know, bought a house and has a kid. So essentially what you want to do, you know, early on, put them under a little bit stricter accountability. And then as they're, they're able to walk it out, that lesson. So, you know, so what it looks like for like a guy who just completed a recovery program and let's say they moved into one of the houses that we have where they, you know, transitional recovery houses, they have to do three things a week. Uh, that are geared towards the recovery. One of those things is a, you know, Bible study that I do on Saturday morning. So this gives me a chance to look in their eye and see where they're at, ask them some questions. And it's early on Saturday morning too. So it's hard to get up. If you're not making good choices, it's hard to get up on Saturday morning. So that's what it looks like for somebody who's kind of, you know, early in the recovery. Uh, later in the recovery, uh, we have a once a month meeting uh, in each of our markets where it's just uh, kind of a recovery meeting. Uh, sometimes we do it in the evening. Sometimes we do it in the morning. But it's just anybody who was a second chance employee or who is in long term recovery, uh, you know, we have a, just kind of a, a meeting where we. Uh, just kind of go around the room and talk and we usually do a cookout and just kind of a just an opportunity to fellowship and if anybody's struggling it gives them an offer opportunity uh, to talk to somebody and, and you know anybody early in recovery has to do that in addition to what what's going on there and then um another thing that we do um you know and this is again you know how how soon somebody completes this depends on the individual but you know like we have people that we have them go through the they have to go through the 12 steps so they have to get a sponsor and they have to go through the 12 steps and then ultimately what we like people to do is once they you know like the people that have years of sobriety uh, you know we we ask them to mentor people in the company as well so we have different levels of mentorship and menteeship uh, within the company and um just kind of a, you know, kind of an ethos and a culture within the company of accountability. And, you know, there's, you know, if somebody, if somebody has made a poor decision, it doesn't take long before somebody spots it. Mm-hmm. Share with me a little more detail around the houses you own. So maybe the number of houses, the type of houses, how you manage and administer them, how many people are living in them. I think that's interesting. Yeah. So currently we have three houses that actually have men in them currently. Uh, we have two more. Uh, one that we will hear, hear soon is it's, it's more geared towards emancipation, which we can talk about that later. But then we have our first uh, women's house. Uh, so we have a total of five houses, three of which have 18 men in it. And then the uh, fourth house will have three young men who have emancipated out of foster care. And then the fifth house will have five women in it. And these are houses that the company owns that we, uh, you know, once they're pulling in a paycheck, whether it, and, and sometimes um, there are, there's a rare occasion where we allow somebody to be in that house that is not working for our company. Um, but for the most part, it's usually people that work for five star. You know, they pay, they pay $50 a week rent and that helps, uh, that helps cover the cost of the house. Um, on, there's two houses where we take that money and the, we have somebody who kind of oversees the house where they kind of, we kind of channel that money to them. And, uh, just, uh, these are just houses that, uh, because there's so few transitional recovery opportunities out there, we just decided to kind of, take our fate into our own hands and just go ahead and invest in the houses and open them up ourselves. And then we also are involved with a lot of transitional recovery organizations and ministries as well that we support. And uh, we actually have a house that we bought for another ministry that does really well in that space. Is there an apprenticeship model for young men in those homes to learn the trades or does that exist kind of outside of that? What does that look like? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, exactly. It's a, an apprenticeship program. So when they come in, uh, we kind of figure out which vertical they're going to be in, whether it be electrical, plumbing, or HVAC, and then just kind of start training them up. And then you have, you know, so if they go HVAC, they're either going to be installers or service. Usually we will start them in installation, take them through installation, and then they can go into service from there. So, and it's like you said, just like you said, an apprenticeship program. Now, with uh, we're getting ready right now to actually uh, start a trade school so they'll be able to actually go through the trade school be a part of, of, of their, what they're doing and the trade school would tie into the former green county vocational school is that right that's correct okay so now we're going to zoom out a little bit i have so many more questions but from my understanding from our last conversation a trade school went out of business in 2020 and you bought it well i mean actually it didn't go out of business so there was a green county career center and uh, they actually got uh, they they got funding for a new one, so the old one went up for auction. Got it, got it. Okay, so tell me how you got involved with that and what your vision is. I have no idea how I got involved with it, honestly. It was, yeah. But basically, what it boiled down to was there's a guy who owned the plumbing company that I was mentoring in business. He was looking to level his company up. And as a result, I've been mentoring him for a couple of years. We've become really good friends and he's a second chance guy as well. Um, he, he hires second chance employees as well. Uh, we, you know, both have a, you know, a heart to give and help people. And, um, you know, we've become really good friends during the course of this mentorship. And he just called me about three days before this building went up for auction and asked me if I wanted to, um, you know, buy the career center with him. And I was like, yeah, probably. I mean, I, I love doing things like that. I'm an entrepreneur by heart. So like, yeah, but let me, let me check with my wife, knowing that my wife, there's no way she would sign off on that. And uh, to my surprise, she did sign off on it. And uh, we ended up winning the building at auction for $1.6 million. And there was another guy, another friend who is a partner as well. Uh, he owns a roofing company. And uh, again, a second. he's in long-term recovery. He's a second chance employer as well. I'd met him through uh, serving on the boards of several transitional recovery ministries. Mm -hmm. And again, the three of us, what we all, what we have in common is we're second chance employers and we're, we're all three in long-term recovery and we share the same heart to help people. And, Describe to me the size of the building, the scope, and and what the next steps are with it. Yeah, so we, we got the building really not even knowing what we we're going to do with the building, but knowing that we could figure something out to do with the building, and we just kind of you know kind of put it on God to see what He wanted us to do, and we all felt like He wanted us to do what we were already doing in our businesses, but just kind of do it on a larger scale. As far as being a second chance employer, there's only so much you can do for somebody as their employer. Um, so this 240,000 square foot building on 40 acres with a four acre pond, just a, in the rural rural Green County, we've identified uh, really three segments of the, two segments of the population that we feel are underserved that are men in recovery, uh, women in recovery, and young men and women who are emancipating out of foster care. So uh, what this, what we're going to be able to do in this facility is uh, 50 men will live there, 50 women will live there, 25 young men who are emancipating out of foster care will live there, and eventually 25 young women 
who are emancipating out of foster care. And what they'll have, what it'll essentially be is an ecosystem for recovery. So they'll get the counseling that they need. They'll get the therapy that they need for those who need life skill classes. They'll get the life skill classes that they need. There'll be a culture of mentorship and discipleship. And there are going to be businesses within that building as well. It's a huge building. So there will be businesses that actually do their, actually operate out of the building in order for a business to be able to uh, exist there. They have to be willing to allow the segments of the population that we're serving there to do internships and apprenticeships. Currently, there's five-star home services there. So there's a plumbing, electrical, and heating and cooling company operating out of the building. There's a fire suppression company operating out of the building. There's an alarm company operating out of the building. There's a call center in the building. Uh, There's a restaurant, a diner, a coffee shop in the building. And um, there'll, there'll also, you know, be more businesses added eventually. Everybody wants to be a part of it. So we're really trying to be super selective on who we allow to come in and be a part of it. And then there will also be businesses that are that are operated outside of the business that, you know, everybody is having problems getting employees right now, people to work for them. So this is going to be an opportunity for people to work within the businesses at the building and also through the relationships that we have with businesses that aren't located there on property. But there's also going to be a trade school there for heating, cooling, plumbing, and electrical uh, that they can go through as well. And uh, like I said, it's just going to be an ecosystem for recovery uh, with a culture of uh, mentorship. I have some really non-important questions that I can't move on from, like what the build out looks like and how you're funding it. So like, what was the, I mean, 1.6 million for 240,000 square feet sounds like the best retail or the best real estate transaction ever. How are you funding it? And what does the build out look like? So initially the, you know, myself and my two partners, uh, Chris Adams, who at the time owned Narrow Path Plumbing and Doug Van Dyke, who owns Van Martin Roofing. Uh, initially, we were the funders. So uh, we purchased the building and then uh, we, you know, the, you know, utilities alone are like, you know, 15, 20,000 a month. So, um, you know, through the, you know, success of our businesses and our willingness to, you know, spend that money on this, we've been able to fund it. Now, what's really been nice is that we've got a lot of our local county, uh, the state of Ohio, uh, local organizations in our area are really coming along beside us. So the first phase of the build out, as far as for people to live there, will be the men's section. And that build out is one point, is going to cost about 1.4 million. Green County, the county that we're in, actually gave us a million dollar grant. So they paid for the majority of it. So, and then we're going to be able to do some, you know, because we have a electrical, plumbing, and HVAC company, we'll be able to do some other work, uh, you know, at, at cost to where we should be. That The first phase is pretty much covered. And then the second phase will be the women's uh, section of it. Um, so we're looking, we know that when we need that money, that money will show up. And then uh, the third phase will be the emancipation phase. So um, we just got a $170,000 grant to build an outdoor pavilion, uh, which will look really nice overlooking the four acre pond and just countless other different grants that we've gotten to just help the operational component of what we do. And just a huge amount of support, not only from just the Greene County area, but the Dayton, just the Dayton area in general. We've really just had an outpouring of support because, you know, if, if we did all this and it only affected one life, it'd be worth it because the ripple effect of one life, you look at, you know, what that affects when one guy is able not only to, you know, to get sober, but also, you know, get a job. You know, I can tell you, I could sit here for, 
a couple hours and just tell you story after story of, you know, men who have chosen to walk through the door that we pointed them towards to where they were able to get back everything they lost during the course of addiction and to get their wife back, get their kids back, buy a house, buy a car, just story after story. Um, it's, it's a normal at our company. So, um, to be able to do it on a, on a much larger scale and also be able to provide an ecosystem to where they get everything they need to, be able to to walk out a life of recovery and and not just survive but but thrive. Can you share a particular story of someone that you can think of on your team that has changed their life and and is is rippling into others? I, I imagine there's so many. Uh, yeah, I can think of them probably over, over hundreds, but uh, the one that stands out is one of the first. It was probably the second guy we hired as a second chance. Now the first guy we hired as a second chance employee. He's the, uh, he works for another heating and cooling company currently. He's the general manager of a very large heating and cooling company in Columbus. And again, everything that I just mentioned, he's got a house, he's got a car. Um, but the guy that works for us, he, um, we kind of have a deal with our employees where they work for us for five years and they get their license, their state license in that five years that we will um, actually go into business with them with a, with a brand. Um, and basically what that looks like is, over years six through ten, they get a portion of that of that local company, and um, at the end of that ten years, they're the one third partner in an actual heating and cooling company. So Whoa. the guy that could, yeah, That's yeah, a big deal. so. Yeah, so we have a guy who's uh, in his seventh year with us. So he's in his second year as an owner. He got his uh, contractor's license within that five years. And, um, you know, so he'll be in three years, he'll be a one-third partner with myself and my brother in a, a company in Columbus, a local company that's doing really, really well right now. Um, you know, he'll be, if he didn't, I mean, th- that particular brand is doing so well that if he chose not to work after that five years, he would probably make a six figure income for the rest of his life. So he's got a house, a car, got his wife back, got his kids back. His kids are doing great. I see. I'm, I'm, I'm not a real big social media guy, but you know, one of the things I love about social media is just seeing these lives play out when they do posts and show pictures. But, uh, that's one that stands out. You know, I can keep going if you want different stories. That's incredible night. I didn't know that you had built that kind of model retention model, whatever you want to call it into the business, which leads me to talk more about the five-star group and hyper local greenfielding. If you're comfortable with that, you mentioned having a bunch of brands. Um, I can attest from firsthand witness that five-star is a different type of company. So we could talk about um, market disruption. We could talk about your model of expansion and growth into other markets. I will let you run with that. You guys are a little different. We are a little different. And, uh, you know, so, you know, long story short is that we recognize the importance of, um, you know, when you look, when most people think of a market, they think of like, you know, a major market as a market. And what we, when we look at a market, we see many markets within a major market. So being able to identify where within a market that you really want to be able to, uh, you know, have high visibility is kind of the key to our philosophy. And basically what that looks like is, um, so like in the case with the with the uh, employee that I just spoke of, you know, he lives in a kind of a suburb of Columbus, a, a major city that's probably 30 miles, 15, that's actually probably 15 to 20 miles from Columbus in Newark. And oh, uh, great market. Yeah. So we uh, we opened up a company in Newark called Newark Heath Heating and Cooling. Um, great name. Yeah. And uh, so typically um, 
you know, kind of our philosophy is just say that that's the Columbus market. So really identifying really every community in Columbus that you want to do business in. And a lot of times, you know, so it's not always greenfielding. As a matter of fact, the first, our first option is always to try to find a brand that we could buy. And usually you want the guy who's been around forever, has got an old website and, uh, you know, wants to get out for a song and a dance. So that's always our first look is to be able to, you know, find something that's already existing. And then we'll look at some different uh, aspects of that company as far as the, uh, if they have a Google My Business, if they have a website, how long, how old that website is. It doesn't have to be an old website, but one of the things that really come into play in the Google algorithm is the length of time of the website. Mm-hmm. So um, if we can't find a brand that we can buy, then, you know, if, it, if it's a good enough area, we will go ahead and uh, actually start a brand in that community and just kind of devote certain people to work that particular area. You know, it's the hyper-local greenfielding is really, you know, nothing more than, you know, looking at a, a market, not just as one big market, but, you know, 40 or 50 smaller markets within one market, choosing which one of those micro markets you want to do well in and then uh, really devoting a lot of time and energy towards the SEO component of what we do. Just making sure that when somebody who is in that community is looking for a, you know, home services company that, you know, that we pop up there as much as possible in the spots where you want to be. So starting in as small of an area as a zip code or a town or a neighborhood in some cases. Uh, so it would be more of a town yeah, and not, not so much a neighborhood. Now, you know, there's also different types of target marketing you can do towards neighborhoods. And of course, you know, if we do something like that, we're going to be looking for a, a subdivision that's about eight to 12 years old to where we'll be, you know, we, we can, there's some things you can do there, but when, when as far as, um, hyper-local greenfielding, it's just really looking at cities mm-hmm. basically around the major market. So Columbus has got probably, you know, 30 cities around suburbs and smaller cities within Columbus, uh, townships, things like that, just identifying those from the demographics and then, you know, uh, exerting a lot of effort to make sure that um, when somebody does the search on their iPhone, we, we market primarily digitally, digitally is how we market. How is that different? I think you just answered it by saying you exert a lot of energy in that specific area, but how is that, if at all, different than, you know, a Columbus-based company that's just doing a ton of SEO for New Albany or a ton of SEO for Upper Arlington. What are the operational components or the marketing components that make it different for you? And I say that because you guys are doing it really, really well and others aren't. Yeah. So like, um, give you one example. So we, we bought a company, we bought a company uh, called Canal Winchester Heating and Cooling. Great company. It was, you know, four guys, <laughs> you know, great. Every one of them were great. You know, the installation crew and the, the owner and the, and the service guy. But the, the best year they'd ever had as a company was, you know, $320,000. So what the advantage, the advantage to him partnering with us and becoming a part of what we are is that, you know, the reason he'd only been able to get to that level of $320,000 is because he could not staff up year round to take advantage uh, of the four months of the year, the one third of the year where we make two thirds of the money. And that's, you know, May through August. So by partnering with us, he was able to, you know, when, when he normally would have been booked out, we actually have, you know, resources available to where we could run every call. If that makes sense, yep. it, it, when you when you kind of uh, in, in, envelop it into the the five star heating and cooling group, you know, so you have a lot more resources available as far as being able to run calls. 
uh, by joining. And so, you know, although their best year ever was 300 and, you know, actually it's like 318,000, I think, uh, the first year after we acquired them, we did over a million with that brand, but just being able to run every call during the peak time of the year. Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and, you know, looking just on your roster of companies, you have very, very strong domain presence across a ton of high value communities in your area. Um, this is more of just a curious question. I don't know if it brings value to anybody, but I assume that's got to be pretty expensive to grab all those domains or what's your process for that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're, we, uh, we're committed, <laughs> we're committed to, you know, making sure that we have the dominance in the, uh, uh areas of town that we want to be in. The, the way we do that is we just, we actually have our own, we have our own marketing company, so we don't we don't source that out. So we yeah, have in house, yeah. in house, yeah. And we have you know we have our own developers, our own content writers, our own analysts. You know, we're constantly looking at you know, just like you said, you know, how are we ranking in in comparison to the other players in our market? What we can do to have a leg up on them, and we always just try to stay ahead of the curve digitally with the Google algorithm. And, uh, yeah, it always changes, you know, uh, one thing you don't ever want to do with Google, you know, you get a lot of people out there putting the fake reviews on their site. You know, people don't realize that Google's not stupid. They, they know when it's a fake review. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and they, they have ways that they can determine that, you know, without even really having to put any manpower. AI can, can find those, uh, pretty quickly. So just, you know, the important thing is just, you know, playing by the rules, um, not trying to, uh, shortcut Google in any way. And, uh, and then just really trying to, you know, stay in touch with as many groups that are talking about Google, what they're looking to do and the trends and what they're thinking about doing in the future and just always staying ahead of the curve. So along the lines of staying ahead of the curve and innovation, I mean, that's how you and I were introduced to one another and yes. you know, Will and, and the rest of the team here at Contractor Commerce. What is your view or vision of the industry as it relates to like e-commerce and online pricing and online quotes, or what is your view for five stars? It relates to that type of technology that no one's using. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been doing it for a while, um, to where, you know, we'll actually, you know, we'll quote out, you know, uh, from our website on, on replacement and, um, you know, the industry as a whole, I think is really trying to resist that. But, um, if you look at one of the areas where we're really trying to stay ahead of the curve, it's in that area because I think whether you like it or not, um, you need to be able, people are going to be able to need to go to your website and be able to, you know, I think, I think, uh, someday here really soon, a majority of the transactions that transpire are going to be done through some type of e-commerce outlet. And if you're, if you're resisting that, you're going to get left behind. I can tell you this, um, there, there was a period of time around 2013, 2014, where people were actually buying units installed online, uh, quite a bit. And that's was, that was, uh, back, uh, Angie's list had a, had a way in which, you know, customers felt comfortable doing that. And mm-hmm. it was through the reviews. So there was, you know, reviews and that, they, that gave the company credibility. But Angie's list also backed it up that if there was a problem that they would, they guaranteed, uh, they guaranteed that the customer Customer would be satisfied, and they they had it. They had a good thing going there, and they moved moved away from it when they got bought out. I actually thought Amazon bought them out, but it wasn't Amazon, right? Yep. Uh, and and Home Advisor, and uh, they have since moved away from you know people actually being able to buy full systems installed online, and um, you know so having that experience with the Angie's List back in 2012, 2013 on how they did it. We're going to be looking to do the same thing on all of our websites where somebody can go to our website and actually buy a three ton air conditioner installed, you know, and, and feel comfortable doing so. 
I'm always, or I've left our last conversation with hope and inspiration. And uh, I certainly will this time because there are days where I wake up and, you know, my view, I share the same view of the future and the same view of the industry and the industry is really slow. And, you know, the majority of contract, I mean, a good bit of contractors are coming around to it, but it's always, it gives me solace when I hear someone really smart say that, uh, say that Will and I and the rest of the team here at Contractor Commerce aren't crazy. So thank you. <laughs> well, I'm glad a lot of people think you are, to be honest with you. <laughs> it, it favors you. Yeah. Hey, it does. It does. It favors the ones that are first to market. And, and that is proven time and time and time again. As we transition to the end of the conversation here, um, thank you so much for an hour. I want to kind of talk a little more philosophically, I guess, or maybe advice for listeners. What is something that you've been wrong about? Maybe earlier in your life, maybe later in your life, something you thought you knew that turned out to be not true or different? Hmm, that's, a, that's a great question. So I think probably, uh, you know, answering that question today in, in the season that I'm in is that um, just how important humility is just in every aspect of life, especially in business. You know, when I was before I had my spiritual awakening, I had lots of mentors some of the mentors I had, you know, really um, taught me what not to do. <laughs> and unfortunately, I emulated them for a, for a period of time before I figured that out. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with confidence and having pride in certain things. But um, pride can be a when it comes to uh, managing people, uh, managing a household, being a, being a good father, being a good husband. I look for opportunities to humble myself quickly, um, you know, because you know, I've, I've had experiences, um, you know, the, the spiritual path that I've chosen to take, you know, one of the things that Jesus says clearly is that you got a couple of choices. You can either humble yourself or God will humble you. And uh, I've had a, you know, I had, a, I had an experience uh, in the last 10 years where, you know, um, uh, God loved me so much that he humbled me. And uh, so if we humble ourselves, God doesn't have to humble us. And then um, I was always the type of person that loved to be served, um, where what I'm finding that serving our company well right now, and then even my leadership team is being servant leaders um, within the organization. So arrogance, um, cockiness, were things that in the in the space that I was in, you know, I thought served me well, but you know, I wish I would have embraced humility and being a servant leader earlier in life. Earlier, you had made reference to the term sanctification. Could you describe your definition of sanctification and how it plays out and what it looks like in your daily life? Yeah. So for me, you know, sanctification is basically being set apart. And so for me, what that means for me is that. Um, you know, every day, um, at, you know, at the end of the day, as uh, somebody who follows Christ, I try to be just a little bit more like Christ. So, and that's a process. You're not going to, you know, let go of everything overnight. But each day you got to have a, a momentum to where you're moving towards that. So, you know, just, you know, so for me, sanctification is being set apart and also just trying to trying to walk out emulating, you know, Christ. And, uh, you know, he's pretty specific on what it means to be a disciple, uh, in the Bible. So just trying to walk that out the best I can, knowing that I'm going to, I'm going to fall short. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be obtained perfect walking it out, but you know, I just, uh, forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. For those who are listening, who are inspired by your story or have questions or, or want to learn either more about your business or more about what you're doing with Emerge or just maybe um, connect with you personally, 
one, are you open to that? And two, how would people get a hold of you? What would be the best way in which they can? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be open to that. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I consider it, a, you know, a privilege to be able to help people that'd be interested in, uh, you know, maybe trying to implement some of these things into their businesses. So the best way uh, to get a hold of me would be kip.morris at fivestargroup.com. That's kip spelled K-I-P dot Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S at fivestargroup.com. Thank you for listening to the Change Your Filter podcast. I hope this podcast today was valuable for you. If you liked this podcast, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and write a review. And if you have an idea of a guest or a topic, leave it in the notes of our YouTube feed. If you are interested in learning more about Contractor Commerce, go to contractorcommerce.com, click learn more, and my team will hook you up.